Hello, friends. Welcome to the Laity Podcast. Uh, this is Andrew. I'm here with Stephen. Really excited to be joined by Gemma Simmons, who is joining us from the UK. I think Cambridge in particular. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate uh, you dealing with our time difference and carving out carving out some time to hang out today. Yeah. Well, it's my pleasure. And I think you're getting the short end of the straw because it's half past 10 in the morning for me. I think it's horribly early for you. <laughs> it is. It's a good excuse to be up at uh, at 5 a.m. But hey, this is what you got to do when you have when you have toddlers running around by 630. So um, no, this is fantastic. We wanted we wanted to have Gemma. So Gemma, I'm going to have you introduce yourself in a moment. But just to quickly make the connection, Gemma recently released um, a book called The Way of Ignatius, A Prayer Journey Through Lent, which of course now we're, we're out of that season formally, though the book I think is still plenty relevant. We wanted to talk with you about Ignatian spirituality. Um, Gemma is a sister of the Congregation of Jesus, which was founded by Mary Ward in 1609 um, and really living a religious life in the Jesuit model, which is, of course, is a stream of the broader sort of Catholic tradition. And rather than me mess up the formal introduction, um, just wanted to say, stop there and say, we're excited to have, honestly, a Catholic voice on the podcast, which we haven't had previously, to our own shame, um, but plenty of connections personally. And again, thank you for coming on. We'd love to have you introduce yourself to your listeners, maybe uh, to our listeners, maybe a bit more formally. Sure. So my name is Gemma, as you said, and um, I'm a Roman Catholic sister. I, I joined religious life when I was 18. So that's, wow. that's a while ago now. And um, I, I work as a Catholic theologian, well, as a, as a theologian within the Catholic tradition, but hugely broad in the people I work with from, from all aspects of the Christian faith and indeed many people outside the formal Christian faith. Um, I, I've just moved recently to, to Cambridge in the UK, having been in London and worked in the um, Jesuit-founded theology faculty of the University of London uh, at Heathrop College for many years. And I'm back in Cambridge uh, where I did my own studies. And I do various things as a theologian, mostly talking to people, engaging in conversations about faith. I did 26 years as a volunteer chaplain in Holloway Prison, which is Europe's biggest women's prison. 26 years. Hmm. And so the conversations about, about faith there were really quite different from the kinds of conversations about faith you have in the university, you know, but hmm. every bit as interesting and engaging and exciting. Um, I've, I've also been a missionary out in Brazil. So, and I do a huge amount of foreign travel these days. So I, I'm very much engaged in conversations about God in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, in Australia, all over the world. And that's also very enriching, being part of this big conversation that people are having about how we relate to God and how God is present in our world right now. Wow. Hmm. For those, for those of our listeners who won't know, could, could you give us a, a little bit of background on the, the Jesuit tradition in particular? Okay, um, sure. We'd love to start there. And then, of course, I want to hear more about your story as well, which I'm, well, I'm sure I'll ask about. Sure. Well, um, I give a little thumbnail of this actually in the book, but Ignatius was a soldier and a bit of a kind of daredevil playboy type in Spain in the 16th century. And 
he he got involved in a military engagement that left him with a cannonball shot in his leg. And so the kind of playboy time was over. And it was during his recovery from that that he began to notice the shifts in his moods. Um, he was a great daydreamer and he was a great reader of the equivalent of the blockbuster novel in those days, which were a kind of romantic stories. And what he noticed was that when he'd been reading those stories, he would be, you know, very stimulated and excited. But in the long term, in the aftermath, it would lead him, leave him feeling really kind of empty and dry. And yet when he engaged with and read the stories about Jesus in the scriptures, or he read stories about the saints, although that took a bit more effort and it wasn't as stimulating as the blockbuster novels, in the aftermath, he felt really enriched and really um, engaged and consoled. And that was just the beginning of Ignatius beginning to say, how does it impact on me when I think about and engage in conversations with Jesus, when I imagine myself with him on the road, with him in his life? And he realized that it was that imaginative life that was drawing him to a really intimate friendship with Jesus. And he became a companion of Jesus and went on the road and just kept asking on a daily basis, God, what do you want me to do? And that became eventually a life of a missionary life and a life of priesthood. Um, and he gathered companions who, who wanted to live this kind of life too. And they became this amazing religious order that has done great things across the world and in mm. history. That's amazing. And so today, the Jesuits are also known as the Society of Jesus, correct? And my, my perspective, uh -huh. and I'm just... <laughs> my perspective and my own kind of short-sightedness has always been on the, on the masculine right side of that coin is like, Oh yeah, there's a bunch of men who are priests and they're ordained and then some are not ordained and they're called brothers. Can you please speak to the, the female side of that? That sure. I think frankly, sure. I was generally unaware of. Well, I mean, the difficulty, there were several difficulties really. One was that um, at the time that Ignatius started the order, there were very, very few alternatives for women. Um, there was a, a saying in Latin um, for a woman, out maritus, out morus, either a husband or a cloister. And those are the two choices, really, for Christian women. Mm -hmm. And either way, you had to live either in the domestic enclosure of the home where your husband had control over your life, or you lived in the religious enclosure of the monastery but the idea that women could be out there in the world doing stuff, you know, the notion of women on the loose basically meant loose women. Uh, mm. and, wow. <laughs> and, you know, this was just, there were not options like that for women. And then along came Mary Ward, who was an English woman. The very beginning, she was born in 1585, and that was the height of the worst persecution of the Catholic community in England by the state. It was a time of religious um, controversy, religious wars. And um, she came from a family that had really suffered for their faith. And she thought that she had a call to be a nun. And the only options open to her were to go into an enclosed monastery. 
Well, there were no monasteries in England because they'd all been shut down by King Henry VIII. So she went overseas to join um, a Franciscan, an enclosed Franciscan monastery, and found that God said to her, you know what, I want you, but I don't want you like this. I want you to do something else for me. And God called her out of the monastery. And she had this sense that for her, the monastery was the world. And she said at one point, there is no such difference between men and women that women may not do great things. And I hope it will be seen in time that women will do much. Wow. So, you know, she was a kind of proto-feminist. She was wow. she said that in 1617. Wow. Um, and at the time, you know, in the universities, people were still seriously debating whether or not women had souls. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. you know, here's this woman saying, you know, God is calling us to be missionaries in the world, to go out there and, and spread the faith. And the, the people who really kept the Catholic faith going in England at the time were mostly Jesuits who lived in hiding, who went and hid in families, pretended to be the tutor or a servant of some sort. And, and then taught the faith to the family. And Mary Ward had come across Jesuits like this. And, you know, all of this, if you got caught, you got executed. You know, this was not... Wow. Th- this was not a game for the soft-hearted, you know? Wow. Um, and so she felt that God was calling her and her sisters to live the Jesuit way of life. The trouble is that it was actually forbidden to be a Jesuit if you were a woman. So Mary Ward spent the rest of her life really not only fighting the wider Catholic Church, but also struggling with the Jesuits, some of whom really thought it was great to have women companions working with them because actually it was less dangerous for women to do the kind of underground work than it was for men um, because nobody imagined that women would be going around spreading Mm. the Christian faith. So, you know, you could get away with a lot more, but also there was this real objection on the part of the Jesuits themselves. We don't have women. There are no women Jesuits. That's just not a possibility. Go back and find yourself a monastery. So, so it's, it's been a, it's been a hard history for us as an order. Wow. That's amazing. So how did you in particular kind of fall into this stream and, and get turned on to the Jesuit tradition in particular? Were you raised in that, with that background? I, yeah, I, I went to school. Our sisters mostly worked in education and still we have, we have sisters working in education all around the world. We have a fabulous sister, an Irish sister called Orla Treacy, who works in in a branch of our order there are two branches to my order and she runs a school for girls in south sudan where again you know mostly the girls are being brought up to be traded for cattle you know a, a man has a daughter and he thinks about how many cows he can get for her when when he gives her away in marriage and all wow. who's who's been honoured by the Irish government, by by all sort, by the United Nations, by all sort of people, is saying actually these girls have a future that may involve marriage, but may involve other choices. Let's give these young women a future. You know, so our sisters are doing this all across the world, and I was um, 
I went to uh, a Mary Ward school when I was three and a half. And we had a sister who was very enthusiastic about raising money for the missions. And when I was really small, I thought God wanted me to go out to Africa and look after African babies. That was what I was sure I was being called to do. I started to tell people that I was going to go out to Africa and be a missionary and be a sister. And And you're like four years old? I was four when I first thought about that. And I started telling people for serious when I was kind of seven, eight. And, you know, people, kids say stuff and and grown-ups think, oh, yeah, that's cute. But actually, one of the things that's taught me is we need to take children seriously. Mm. We need to take children's spiritual lives seriously because I I knew about God. God was my friend when I was little, and that was a friendship that has just never gone away. Wow, I love wow. that. So, what are you? I mean, you you joined the order when you were eighteen. Uh huh. Sure. What was what was that uh, discernment like? I mean, I, I guess is it the earliest that you're able to join it? it? No, I could have gone a bit earlier, but I think my parents would have gone crazy. <laughs> I, I mean, they, my parents went pretty crazy anyway. Um, my father was a Protestant, my mother a Catholic, and actually it was my Catholic mom who cried for three days when I said I wanted to be a sister, you know? Wow. Mm. Um, I mean, I was, I, I had quite a troubled time at school. I found discipline very difficult and I was a bit kind of wild. And so I was probably the last person in the world anyone would imagine joining the novitiate. But I just had this powerful sense of God saying, there's this life for you that is going to be exciting, that is going to be amazing, is going to have no security, and is going to be with me. Do you want to come along? Wow. And I just thought, yeah, I don't, I don't see anything out there that feels more exciting than that. And I have to say, I have had a ball. I've had an amazing, amazing, I mean, it's, you know, it's a life that's had its difficulties and its struggles and its troubles, but I have not been bored in over 40 years. Well, that's something, you know? Yeah. Wow. So is there, how, how, uh, how have you changed, I guess, since you joined this order at 18 uh-huh. and, and I, I imagine a couple of things, but I mean, you know, that you've that have probably shifted over the, over the years, sure. uh, has anything shifted for you theologically or just in your mind or in, in your walk with Jesus? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, externally, when I started, when I joined the order, we were all wearing 17th century widow's costume. Wow. So, wow. you know, and I went to university in a long black dress and a long black veil. And, you know, it's the kind of equivalent today of a girl going to university dressed in a burqa, you know. Mm. Um, And most of my friends were non-believers and they thought this was so weird. But they kind of got used to the fact that Gemma wears funny clothes, you know. (laughs) Um, And and we, we now wear ordinary dress, which is actually what Mary Ward wanted for us. And... That means that I've, you know, I can't rely on external things to make me feel a sense of consecration. It has to Mm. be something deep within. Um, And over the years, that is something that's grown so that it's not as if I'm putting a label on. 
that says I am a nun every time I do anything. But I do have a sense every time I walk into a room or I encounter someone, you know, this is me talking, this is me being with them, but Jesus is here too. You know, I never have a sense of him not being around. I have a very, very vivid sense of him being alive and with me, kind of at my shoulder and sometimes going, great, that's my girl, you go for it. And sometimes I have a sense of his putting his head in his hands and saying, oh, no, not again. <laughs> uh, I can relate more to the, to the latter. Uh, not again. <laughs> not again. Didn't I tell you about this last time? <laughs> Come on. That's good to know that even those of us formerly like in a in a religious order still deal with that as oh, well. Sure. That's good to know. Sure, sure. Um what makes so so particularly for us more ignorant Protestants, what what makes the Jesuit tradition or what is unique in particular about the Jesuit tradition, even within the broader Catholic stream? One thing is my, that's my core question, and one thing to tack on to that is one thing that, that I've been so drawn to over years of, of, you know, diving in really at a surface level has been, you know, for, for Ignatius, um, his call was to really see, see God in all things that, and you said this, that the monastery was just life. It was daily life. Mm -hmm. It was engagement. This was not a withdrawal, Mm -hmm. but an engagement in the world. Obviously we see the Jesuit tradition strong in the education space, which you've already alluded to. What else in particular kind of makes, makes this tradition unique? Well, It's one of the things I say in the book, actually, that I think Ignatius would not have recognized the term Ignatian tradition. He'd have been really puzzled by that and I think a bit embarrassed by it in the sense that, you know, he wasn't trying to, to, to start an ism you know, Ignatianism, or he was just saying, look, there's a way to engage with the scriptures that is not about proof texts. It's about an intimate, personal relationship with a a person, the person of Jesus. And what's more, the way we do that is by using our imagination and is also by testing our emotional responses, you know. I mean, all day, every day, we have deep emotional responses to things, And most of the time, and I bet you as a busy dad, you probably know this, we we kind of go through life on automatic pilot because there's so much happening. We don't even notice what's going on half the time. Mm -hmm. And then every once in a while we think, oh, blimey, how did I get here? You know, why do I always do this? Or why do I always say this? Or why are people always like this? And sometimes what we need to do is just sit and be quiet and think, okay, what's really going on? What's going on? Um, I always tell, you know, I used to tell my students when we were looking at the scriptures, there are two questions to ask about any event in the scriptures. One question is, what's happening? And that means, well, Jesus meets a blind man or whatever it is. And then the next question is, what's going on? Hmm. (laughs) Because what's going on is what's going on underneath what's happening. And I think very often we as people, we notice what's happening, but we don't notice what's going on. And I think Ignatius, his genius was to say, look, in every aspect of us being human, whether it's eating a meal or hanging out with our kids, 
or doing the laundry or going to the shops or driving down a street, there's something going on. Life is going on and, and the life of the spirit is going on. Now, we can't spend all day totally focused on that. Otherwise, we'd never get anything done. <laughs> <laughs> you know. But at the end of every day or maybe at the end of every week or something, to spend a bit of time in conversation with God saying, can you show me what you think was going on for me? And to see our lives from a God's eye view, from God's perspective, you know, it really kind of changes the perspective of the way we see things. Yeah. Can, can we talk about, a, uh, I guess, the examine? I mean, the, the, your, your book, you mentioned um, primarily the, the spiritual exercises, but early on, you, you, you mentioned this, the, the examine prayer. Yeah. Sure. So really, this is, this is to a large extent what I've been talking about, that Ignatius said, look, there, there's one really good way of being able to pray like this, which is, you know, at some point in the day, or maybe if you can't do it every day, you know, once every, a couple of times a week or once a week, in a sense to kind of play back the film of my day and say, where was God in all this? Where did, where did I encounter God? Where did God meet me in this day? Mm. And maybe where was I just switched off from God? You know, where did I not meet God? Because I was just, you know, busy pursuing some other dream or some other fantasy. And it's a very simple kind of prayer. And it sounds very kind of, well, hey, you do it, you don't do it. But it is a way of being more profoundly aware of God in my life. And I think for most of us, it's not that God isn't in our lives. It's just that we don't notice and the examine, as he calls it, it kind of sharpens up our awareness, do you know? It sharpens up our sense of God, who is who is present to us in, in our conversations, in our thoughts, in our basic reactions. And I think that helps us to have a more anchored sense of God's real presence in our lives. And it also helps us to see when we are living maybe toxic patterns that are really not helping us to live a godly life. So sometimes I think we can get into um, patterns of behavior, patterns of response, patterns of reaction that are not life-giving. And, mm -hmm. and God's invitation to us is, could we do this differently? <laughs> mm. I love this idea of like in that mode of thinking about prayer and this prayer of examine. Many of us, when we think about prayer, it's okay. I need to position myself to then bring all of these things to God and talk all of this out. And I'm sure there is a space for supplication and petition, but this is so much more of a listening yeah. posture, like listening internally. Can, can, yeah. can you speak more to that and, and where kind of, when you think about kind of prayer within the Ignatian tradition, you have the examine. I mean, kind of what else does that look like kind of practically is there uh, is prayer at times more of the supplication more kind of we're praying through a list of things or is it always this listening can you just speak to that a bit okay so i mean one of the things ignatius says is that you know part of the examine i mean the first part of it is simply 
get yourself physically present. I mean, I have a friend who's a university lecturer like me, and at the and he lives in your country. And at the end uh, of a long day, uh, he likes a gin and tonic. <laughs> and so he pours himself out a GNT and he goes and sits on his balcony with his GNT and kind of this is my time for relaxing and just kind of you know letting the day flow past me. And he he prays his examine while he's drinking his GNT. <laughs> and you know, that's how he does it. Um I know I know a woman, she's a mom, she's very busy. Um, she gets into the bath and she just puts a little bit of nice oil in the bath and she gets into the bath. She says it's the one place she knows that her kids can't get at her. <laughs> so, so she just, you know, has a little kind of wallow in the bath. And in that time, she's kind of with God. And Ignatius says the first thing to do is, first of all, just thank God. Just spend a bit of time. And, you know, there are days I have when the only Thanksgiving I can give is, thank God I survived the day. (laughs) Yeah, thank God I'm still alive. But there are other times when I can really thank God for people I've met, conversations I've had. I just thank God for, for the life he's given me. And that in itself is a prayer. And then to pray for light and to pray to see myself as he sees me. Because I think sometimes, you know, we we think about the life of, of prayer as if it's a kind of performance-related activity. And thank goodness, prayer isn't about putting on a performance. So it's, I'm asking God, help me to see my day with your eyes. Um, and... Do you know there's a lovely uh, there's a lovely line in a in a medieval text called the Cloud of Unknowing, which was written here in England, and it says, "It's not what you are, nor what you have been, but what you want to be that God sees with merciful eyes." Wow, um, I think that's you know it's about our deepest desires. So here's God saying, "How did you want today to play out?" And then God says, well, how did it play out? And that's, I think, our moment for, for being truthful, for being able to thank God for, for the blessings and the graces and the mercies we've had, but also maybe share with God the bruises of the day and look at maybe, well, where did those bruises come from? You know, was I responsible for that? Did, was it about the way I was present to people or not present to people? Or is there maybe something that, you know, someone else did that I I need to kind of forgive them for, (laughs) forgive myself for? Mm. And and then that's, I think, when the petition comes of asking God, you know, Ignatius says to us, what grace do you want God to offer you right now? What grace do you think you need right now? And for me, it's very often, I need the grace to think first before I open my mouth. (laughs) <laughs> mm. yeah. Wow, yeah, I can relate. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, you know, that's not a grace that I'm always very sensitive to. So maybe that's probably the most frequent conversation I have with God, or the grace of patience, or um, the, the grace to give other people space, to let them be themselves. 
And, you know, these are subtle things, but day by day when you find yourself asking for those graces, I think that God would not inspire us to ask for a grace if he were not already in the process of giving it to us. Hmm. So I think when we when we recognize the need of a particular grace, it's because God is already trying to give it to us. That's great. How, how, how do you see our, our, our appetites kind of um, getting in the way of that process? One of the things I liked about, about your book is you, you, you spent a lot of time talking about the ways that our, that our, that our appetites can be disordered, but it's not that our appetites are bad. They're, no. they're actually good. And yeah. so the, the, the Ignatian mm-hmm. posture is, is not to withdraw from the appetite. Sure but it's to lean further in and through to the other side. Sure. And and also, you know, appetites, desires, these are good things. But when they when they become overwhelming, when they rule us, you know, um certainly in the Western, in the developed world, um I think we are aware of, of quite addictive ways of life. I mean in your country and in mine, there are lots of people with problems with alcohol, problems with food, um, kind of toxic patterns of living. You know, we're addicted to speed and to everything's got to be very quick, quick, quick in a rush. You know, and yeah. and it's you, you when you, when you look at the number of related diseases, you know, people are eating and drinking and hurrying themselves to death. Mm in our countries and at the same time we live with the appalling scandal in most of the rest of the world of people who are dying because they don't have enough to eat or drink and and they don't have you know meaningful things to do with their lives and that seems to me to be a kind of disordered appetite yeah one tiny part of the world thinks it's got to have everything and is dying of excess, and and the majority of the world are struggling just to survive and for their kids to survive. So, I think the examine helps us to to get a real grip on, you know, are my desires leading to a greater faith, a greater hope, a greater love? Are they leading to a greater freedom, or are they actually trapping me? Are they are they enslaving me? You know. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, this sounds very dramatic. Unfortunately, for most of us, these things creep up on us quietly, unawares. You know. Yes. Um, but it's still there is still a question that begs to be asked. I think here. Yeah. Um, you know, are my desires leading to uh, to me being more deeply human, or are they dehumanizing me by by making my life toxic? Wow. So, how, can we move to the to the the, the spiritual exercises? Uh, I, I really liked how. Um, I mean, gosh, we've got so many things we could talk about, but I, I, I just love your your overview of the exercises, and um, I thought maybe it'd be fun to introduce folks a little bit to that. What are the? Can I maybe give a little bit of context about about, about how yeah. he wrote them or when they were written, and then just how they're organized and and what we can learn. So Ignatius Ignatius went to to talk try and find God. He went through a kind of hippie, hairy stage, you know, <laughs> and he went to live in a cage, cave in, in that place called Manresa in Spain. And 
Um, he went a bit crazy, really. I mean, like people sometimes do when, when they go through these kind of hippie stages. And and it was all a bit excessive and, you know, he didn't eat properly and, and he was, he, he got very focused on himself and he realized that that was not a healthy way of going about things. And eventually he worked out that just kind of being in relationship with Jesus and and going along the route that the going along the road that Jesus walked in his life and you know coming close to Jesus as he chooses to be born in a stable as he chooses to be born into a poor family as he chooses to live a very ordinary life he found that that actually gave him a certain balance mm. in his own life and so he eventually worked out a way to help other people come to know Jesus in this way, which he called the spiritual exercises. And he divided them into four weeks that are not actually, you know, blocks of seven days. They're kind of phases, I suppose. And the first phase is meeting the real me. Meeting the real me, the me that God created. Why did God create me? Why did God create me as the me that I am? How can I be that best me? And learning to say yes to the me that is both, that is loved, but is also a sinner, a loved and forgiven sinner. So meeting the real person that I am, including my fragilities, my weaknesses, and kind of hearing God's yes to me, then becomes a goodness, I, I want to live this godly life and I want to follow Jesus as closely as I can. So the next phase is meeting the real Jesus. And the way we do that is by encountering him in the way that he encountered other people in the stories of the scriptures, hearing him talk, watching him act, being part of that story. And the more we do that, the more drawn we become to, to follow him. And so the third stage is learning to, finding out the real cost of discipleship. Because for Jesus, the cost was death. Right? And for yeah. many of those who followed him, there is a cost to this. And if we want to be where Jesus is, then we need to be prepared to go where he goes. And to offer that to him and see what he says about it. But if we're following the crucified Jesus, we're surely also following the risen Jesus. So the fourth part of this, of the exercise is, what does it mean to live in the resurrection? What does it mean to live the risen life for me? What does it mean for me to live the life of the spirit? What does it mean for me to be a spirit-filled person? Mm. And what is that going to mean for the choices that I make with my life? So, you know, if I'm an insurance broker or if I'm a police officer or if I'm a housewife or a painter or a scientist, whatever I am, a ballet dancer, what does it mean for me to be a spirit-filled ballet dancer or a spirit-filled scientist, a spirit-filled media person or whatever it may be? And, and that's how the exercises help us to to understand those kinds of life choices. Mm. For someone that, and I know we're coming close to time, so I'll be sensitive here, but in terms of, thank you for getting into that. And in terms of 
these principles or the prayer of examiner, these different practices that I think, um, uh-huh. I, can you speak to this idea of shaping a religious life around these practices, around the principles? Um, for those of us that grew up where it's like, hey, you got to sort of muster up the passion and excitement for Jesus or for the Bible or for discipleship without necessarily having, you know, we weren't, I didn't grow up reciting the Lord's Prayer or any, any particular, and we did communion, you know, weekly, but can you speak to sort of what, what is a kind of the importance of having these sort of structures in place and be curious how you've seen this play out in your ministry and, you know, in years of teaching this, um, how this is, how this has impacted, you know, the daily walk of, um, you know, those who have put it into practice. Sure. I mean, you know, the spiritual life has its highs and lows like any other kind of life. And, you know, I might ask you, well, what does it feel like to be married? What does it feel like to be a dad every single day? And I think if you're honest, you'd probably say to me, well, there are times of ecstasy and there are times of agony and there are times that are just ordinary, dead ordinary. But it's just part of who I am. It's part of how it is to be me. And I think the spiritual life is very like that. Um, you know, if we lived on the mountaintop all the time, hey, we'd we'd never we'd never brush our teeth, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and at the same time, if everything was kind of drab and dreary, well, I think we'd we'd lose heart in the end. Um, but you know, most of us, if we're honest, we're pretty interested in ourselves. You know, if you ask most people, tell me about yourself. They've nearly always got something to say. (laughs) (laughs) This sense of, you know, on a daily basis, I'm just trying to be more attuned to, more aware of who myself is and how it is to be me in the world. That, that, you know, that's a different story every day. Um, I do think having sort of habits is good because... They they accumulate, you know. You, you it's a bit like um, if if you're a. I mean, I'm a musician, and and you can't play good music without practicing. You know, if you never practiced at all, your hands would would get out of you know out of gear. You wouldn't you wouldn't you'd lose the touch. Um, and I think for most people who have any kind of art, whether it's a um, you know, they are artists or people who are really good at mechanical things. You've got to keep in practice, otherwise you lose the touch. And the spiritual mm. life is the same, really. Um, and the more you, you keep in practice, the more instinctive it becomes. It just becomes a part of who you are and how you are. Excellent. Yeah. You, you got this little quote in your book I could read real quick. Um, I like this. You said, while the focused or daily work of such prayer is very much at the level of the inner self, it has an outward orientation towards the world. And so and this section of the book here, you're, you're talking about how even though in these, the more structured life maybe of someone who's in an order, um, it, it, there are there are outward practices. What's really happening is it's a reorientation of the inward life, yeah. so that we interact differently. Sure, with the mean, outside world. You know, we have a sister who's in her nineties now, and she has this great ministry on the bus, 
I mean, she just, you know, when I get on the bus, I get on the bus, I pay my ticket, I sit down, I wait until I get off my stop and off I go. And that's it, you know. Mm-hmm. But Kitty, she is, she gets on the bus, everybody talks to her. By the time she gets off the bus, she knows everybody's, you know, have they got an ache or a pain? Is their legs hurting? They're having trouble with their kids. You know, they had um, their wife died or they're going shopping. They're going on holiday next week. She's got everybody's biography. I just don't know how she does it. But I think it's because she's become so open to other people. And she doesn't even need to engage in conversation. She just looks like somebody that you would want to talk to. And people just talk to her, you know. It doesn't have to be anything more special than that. It's just developing a kind of presence a presence to your family, a presence to your workplace, a presence to the world, that, you know, we are responsive, resonant creatures. And I think when we start habitually responding and resonating to to God who's present in the world, but to other people, our lives become immeasurably rich, even though it's just, you know, I get out, I get in the, out of bed in the morning, I do my work, I come home at night, you know, they don't have to be spectacular lives, but they can be really rich in this way. Yeah. Henry, uh, Henry and Alan lists our, uh, our, our, our desire for the spectacular or to be spectacular is kind of one of the great pitfalls to, to avoid sure. in spiritual life. How do you, how do you see that playing out? I mean, in what ways do you see, uh, you know, in, in, in your society and mine, this, I don't know, pursuit of the spectacular as, as getting in the way of spiritual lives. Well, you know, I just think we're so overstimulated. I mean, I know both in my country and yours, you know, these days you can't buy just a cup of coffee. It has to be a kind of choco latte, frothy, blah, blah coffee, you know. As if we've got to keep adding stuff to everything in order to taste it at all. And actually, when we simplify our lives and we just become more deeply present to the ordinary, we find that the full flavors start coming back to us, you know. And we enjoy, the you know, the God of the little things. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think part of our need for the spectacular is because we've missed how spectacular the ordinary can be. You know, I was on my way to Mass this morning, and on our lawn there were two blackbirds having a fight over a worm, and each of them had one end of the worm in its beak, and they were having a kind of tug of war. It was one of the funniest things I've seen. It was just (laughs) hilarious. (laughs) And it was, in a sense, it was so ordinary, but, you know, I, I stopped just to watch them. And I got so much pleasure out of that. It was like watching a movie, you know, which one was yeah. going to win and, you know, and the way they were looking at each other. That was just a tiny little moment where I was able to be present to something really ordinary in a way that gave me enormous pleasure. <laughs> yeah. And reminded me how funny God is, what a sense of humor God has, you know. <laughs> oh, hi, sweetie. Can you say good morning? Hi, hi. Hi, baby. That's basically, she's four years old. Oh, I remember I don't think being... she's going to go to Africa. I think she's going to, she said she's going to be a doctor and a, and a teacher and a mom, right? Is that what you said? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are all great things to be, sweetheart. As long as you're within, you know, a couple blocks of my house. That's how yes. Steve is thinking. <laughs> <laughs> you can live in the basement. Thank you so much for for taking this time. And of course, there are many other questions we could ask, but I want to make a last plug here. We'll put the notes in for everybody. But again, that we'd highly recommend the book and um, oh, certainly so much. would recommend folks that, you know, are less familiar with... Uh, the Ignatian tradition to to dive in has certainly been helpful for us personally. And again, yeah. thank you so much for for carving out the time to, to hang out with us this morning. Guys, it's really my huge pleasure. It's been lovely to meet you, and and God's blessing on anybody who watches or listens to this. 